You're listening to Make It Thrive, the company culture podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Benton, culture consultant and founder of Liberty Mind, and I want to inspire people to create unique company cultures where our human potential can thrive. In this podcast, I talk to organizations and employees about the impact of company culture. Together, we can make it thrive. Hi, and welcome back to Make It Thrive. I truly hope that the season so far has inspired you. And if you'd like to hear more from our previous season, don't forget to go back and listen to season one. On today's podcast, I'm talking to Charles Camillard from Rayo HR about the challenges of cultural diversity in the workplace. Now, Charles has lived and worked in many countries around the world and has first-hand experience of not only working in a diverse team, but also building a diverse team. So let's get started. Hi, Charles. Many thanks for joining me today on Make It Thrive podcast. Give us an introduction to yourself and tell our audience a little more about your experience working in diverse company cultures. Uh, Perfect. Sure. Um, Thanks, Lizzie, for inviting me on your program and giving me the opportunity to uh, discuss these topics, first of all. Um, No problem. I'm half English, half Korean. Um, I spent uh, my early uh, childhood, uh, probably some of the most uh, formative years overseas, and then I came to the UK and uh, went to university over here. In the last 10 years, I've lived in five countries and worked from companies for from large multinationals uh, in pharma to a couple of startups, um, one in San Francisco and one over here in London, and was able to do a couple of very cool internships on the West Coast um, in tech companies. And so from my experience, the culture at uh, a manufacturing company is very different from one at a tech firm. And mm. uh, the, the kind of things that I have picked up is that, I mean, some are obvious things, for example, um, the quality of talent that you're working with, your talent profile differs in, in different uh, industries and companies and job functions. Um, there's a profitability of the enterprise. So um, some of those tech companies in San Francisco were very profitable. And so you had free snacks and a really cool office and really expensive furniture and, and things like that, um, as opposed to the manufacturing company in Slough, where um, I spent six months. It was very, very different, and so the <laughs> yeah, the environment of the workplace affects the culture, and I, and I think um, that's why you can see the the effort that companies like WeWork uh, go into to try and make sure that the interior design is is nice and inclusive. And obviously, as you probably know, as you're you're the expert in this, that um, each organization can put different uh, mechanisms in and and. Um, each mechanism can change a culture uh, positively and and steer it towards the direction that uh, the management team wants it to. So definitely one thing no, that I, I yeah, totally agree. <laughs> one thing that I um, know has worked pretty well is that um, in business school we had something called the team charter, and it's something that I've taken along with me in every team that I've worked in now, and so. We go through the, the team's goals and how each person wants to work and what um, each person wants to get out of the project. And it kind of aligns everyone else in the team and it, it builds a kind of uh, a stronger bond with the different uh, the people in the team. And I think those kind of things are very 
are important to, to culture. And so, um, yeah, this, this is just some of my, my experiences and um, I'm sure that I'll learn a lot more from you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Well, I, I find it so fascinating because I've obviously only ever worked in one country. Um, and it's it's so fascinating when people do travel and they experience those different sort of um, cultural um, diversity in the workplace, especially because we all come with um, sort of our own preconceptions of of how we do things and our characteristics and our personalities so so understanding that and the experiences people go through I think is is a conversation that I think a lot of people will be fascinated to listen to I mean diversity is such an essential part of building strong company cultures um, without it you know ideas and services can quickly become obsolete and not relatable to the real world at all so However, with cultural diversity teams, there are also sort of the difficulty of the various cultural customs and influences. Um, I mean, what's been your experience trying to understand other people's cultural customs? Oh, yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, and there, there's so many strange things that differ from one country to the other. Um, for example, you know, in India, if you're shaking your head, um, side to side, that means yes, and in England it means no. And <laughs> so those are the, those are some of the sort of more nuanced things that you don't really realize until you're in the country and and you've moved there. And Absolutely. Yeah, and so I think that um, yeah, understanding different cultures, it it's more about understanding the the people you're working with, and that can help a lot. And then having knowledge about the history of the the place where you are. So, for example, when I was dropped off in uh, Freiburg on one winter morning and I just uh, relocated from the UK, I didn't uh, speak a word of German. I knew nothing about the the local town I was sent to. And um, I had to suddenly work with people on a project that uh, I had no idea on how to do. And, wow. and you... If, as long as the people, the personalities are, are friendly and you, you're able to engage and build rapport, then you can start seeing things from another person's perspective. And, you know, if you want teams to work really well, you've got to, you've got to make sure that there's a good level of rapport. And so out of all the teams I've worked in, from the, the really small teams to the uh, diverse group of people at business school to the, the startup I'm running now, that the key is having really smart people and uh, with shared incentives. And so it's not really the diversity that much which is um, adverse in any way. It, the diversity is replete with providing um, new perspectives on, on different solutions. And so... Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible how one person can see something from a completely different angle. And... When you are able to go through problems and have lots of different um, people in your team uh, contribute, then you start to look at you, you start to build a very robust solution. One, for example, um, when you're looking at risks in developing certain software, you've got different people looking at things from a different angle: product manager, marketing person, uh, the engineer. And that way you can, you can build out a very, very good product. When only one person is looking at it, typically you, you miss a lot of stuff on the ground and the, the product is, is suboptimal.
Definitely. No, I absolutely agree. I think I think the benefits of diversity are so vast. Um, I mean, just to give our audience some, some further data, a McKinsey report that covered 366 public companies in a variety of countries and industries found that those which ha- were more ethically and gender diverse performed significantly better than others. Um, I mean, what benefits have you seen from working in a culturally diverse team? Ah, okay, that's a good question as well. Um, and uh, McKinsey is a very, very good example because it has, and uh, my roommate actually from university is is a partner there now. And the the types of people that uh, work at that organization, especially, tend to be very diverse. They've got many offices globally, and what is really, really important is that everyone is is very smart and motivated. And when we're talking about the benefits of having a diverse team, aside from the different perspectives, um, it makes you, as a person, better able to to work in a variety of situations. So, for example, um, people from different countries have uh, different uh, work styles. They might communicate differently. So, for example, uh, you know, some might communicate more abruptly. Others might. Um, Others might be more direct and, and others might be uh, more subtle in, in the types of uh, phrases they use. Um, English might not always be the first language. And so mm-hmm. hints might be missed uh, when you're dealing with people who are less direct. Um, having said that, um, there's also the case where you work with people that are so different from you that it becomes very, very difficult. And so um, in those cases where you're uh, trudging, trudging along the ground to try and get to a solution on on any project and maybe there's some shouting involved (laughs) um, sometimes from business school Um, then you tend to you tend to uh, over time be able to overcome those those difficulties and I I think um, especially for me in the past where I've had to work with um, work styles which were different from my own, which is a more sort of Anglo-American type of uh, work style. Um, It's made me more robust as a person, more adaptable and versatile. And I think that kind of experience should be uh, really greatly beneficial to uh, a whole range of people, especially those who come from very, um, let's say, homogenous cultures and and, and, uh, work environments. Definitely. I think that's some really valid points there that you've made, Charles, actually, because, you know, the call on organisations to be more diverse has been something which is prominent in the media. um, And it's been a huge incentive for, um, you know, HR specifically, you know, diversity inclusion is a, a very big agenda at the moment. I know you've said you've worked in many countries during your career. Do you think there are countries that do it better than other when it, others when it comes to building more diversity? Um, uh, yes, I would say yes. So in America, I would say um, I experienced some of the, the best cultures uh, work in terms of work environment that, that I've ever seen. And part of that is probably because of the type of company and the effort that is put into developing the kind of inclusive culture which most people want to work in. And I, you know, having having read your one of your articles, I know that most people want to work in cultures where they're valued and where uh, the culture is inclusive. And so, in the U.S., especially, they 
they spend a lot of time uh, attempting to build um, a culture by introducing mechanisms, by doing surveys, getting feedback from people, and having um, a code of ethics or, or company values which says, you know, this is acceptable, this is not acceptable. Okay, and, and so one specific example here, which might be interesting to to people, is that. Um, when you work in a very male-dominated tech environment, sometimes some of the language that um, is used is would be completely unacceptable in, in different environments. And so I was reading uh, a book by um, Ben Horowitz called Hard Things About Hard Things. And in it, he deals with this topic in a way that says, look, um, using expletives in the workplace is not acceptable if it's aimed at any other individual, but you can understand sometimes people might get frustrated and they might they they might use a bad word, and that's acceptable. That's part of part of the workplace culture. Whereas um, putting that and codifying it into uh, the the values of his team, he was able to to create a culture where everyone was able to to know the boundaries, as it were. And, and I think yeah, and I, and I think those. Other types of things that um, that can really change a workplace and make it comfortable for a, a whole range of people. Now, on the flip side, there are some cultures, um, company cultures, and, and this might be in you know certain European countries, which are a little bit um, less embracing than the American type, and where a lot more is unsaid. And mm, I found those yeah. cultures to be a little bit more difficult, uh, from my own experience. Um, to get along with uh, the people and fully express yourself and get the best work out of, get the work, best work performance out of everyone because some people might uh, not know uh, where the limits are. And this whole concept of bringing your whole self to work um, and, and finding a tribe becomes a little bit repressed because uh, the boundaries and the expectations aren't, aren't as overtly um, set as it is in the U.S., Definitely. I think that's such a valid point, really, because like you say, you need to be able to bring that authentic self and that that whole self to be able to fully commit your commit to the project and commit to being able to put your thoughts across. And like you say, sometimes that that can be difficult when that's um, stifled in workplaces. And actually, we're, we're asked to put on a mask and act a certain way. And and we think that's just within our culture, but actually it, it does happen in, you know, internationally as well so I think that's a really valid point so when there's a significant pool of diverse teams in a company culture it can often be a case of um, particular members creating their own mini tribes like you've mentioned um, without really socializing perhaps with the wider um, sort of organization um, and it is something we naturally do as humans you know we find others who are like ourselves um, but this can be deeply um, stifling for a thriving culture and obviously collaboration. Have you found that people will naturally segregate themselves or in your experience, have people been more open to each other? What's kind of, what have you found? That is a very valid observation. And um, unfortunately, I'd have to say that um, people naturally segregate themselves. And it's this whole concept of in-group and out-group biases Mm. And I've seen it in every organization I've been in. So um, when I worked in France, uh, we used to, I mean, it was an American company, but there was this French uh, mafia that we, we referred to some of the people in, in the team because they'd all get lunches together. And obviously they all spoke French together. The rest of us didn't speak French very well. And so we were naturally excluded. In business school, 
um, the people who tend to be, uh, you know, similar, they, you know, the ones that like sports or the ones that are from certain backgrounds mm. and to hang out together, the same as they do at uh, universities uh, at undergrad level and at, at school. And so the way to counteract that, and one uh, thing that I found very, very effective at uh, Duke University where I went to business school, is that they would put you in these learning teams. And a learning team would have six people in it. And the team was picked uh, by the, the university. So we didn't know who anyone else was on the team. And they were picked for diversity. So in my team, I had a person from Kansas, one from Oklahoma, one person from China, a person from Vietnam, and myself. And we all had, uh, obviously, different work backgrounds and, and uh, you know, attended different schools and lived in different parts of the world. And because of that mechanism to force us initially to, to work together, that um, we were able to uh, meet. Um, and we worked throughout the two years on uh, different projects where we became uh, close friends. And now we're still close friends uh, five years on. And I wow. think, yeah, and I think having those kind of mechanisms is, uh, well, are having those kind of mechanisms are crucial to uh, creating uh, this uh, natural. Uh, barrier to the, the segregation and make sure that everyone works well together because once you do that then suddenly the for example if it's a workplace or any kind of project you're working on suddenly you're replete with new ideas because uh, every individual thinks he or she could contribute well to it definitely I have to agree that's such a valid point it I talk about this a lot with um, companies about creating those those micro teams whether it's for learning and development or whether it's to work on projects is like drawing people from from different departments to work together on something can massively break that and um, sort of you know that that diversity divide that that happens and, and even if it happens in you know departmentally when you get sort of departments separating themselves from other departments and and all of that kind of thing, I think it's important that we we bring people together more for that diverse collaboration because that's when we're so much more creative in the workplace. Uh, Lizzie, can I ask a question actually on this? Yeah, go for it. What kind of uh, mechanisms do you typically recommend companies to have when they're trying to foster this collaborative environment? That is a really good point. <laughs> um, I mean, it really depends what their vision is ultimately with their company culture. But in order to, to foster more collaboration, I think it's really important that we have um, almost like, uh, in fact, I've, I've spoken it on one of the um, podcasts is, um, called Communities of Practice. So that's a really important part and an important process for organizations to adopt in order to create more collaboration between um, people. That's vitally important. So that's a really good process to use when you're looking to essentially help people to learn more within their role, but not to do it in such a formal way, if that makes sense. So for example, you kind of, um, perhaps they meet once a month um, or once a week to talk about problems that they perhaps have within their role. So they could be in the marketing department or they could be, um, you know, uh, developers, whatever they are. And if they come together once a week or once a month to discuss that together, um, that's a really good way for, for people to problem solve with a lot more diversity within the group rather than people trying to do it on their own. 
Um, and it's the same with, um, you know, projects and things like that. So if there is a specific project that's come in, it's creating teams around those projects rather than making it go through sort of the traditional streamline. It's almost creating a smaller streamline within a, a micro group. Um, so if you assign, say, someone um, in design, someone in development and someone uh, in marketing all in one one project to help that project flourish and to help it go from start to finish. There's a lot more collaboration than if you've got to then take it through like the traditional organizational process, which can actually not often be touched on by the by the team themselves. So allowing that is a really good way to to get them fully invested in the project itself and to increase that collaboration okay yeah that sounds fantastic and then so one follow-up question to that would be how do you assign the different responsibilities um, within a team like that so the accountability and responsibility for decision making um, along a a project uh, for example in that uh, cross-functional team how do you um, assign that and how how do you make sure it's still efficient in, in terms of getting output so it's, it is a difficult one because you have to give the team autonomy. So one thing we often talk about is the responsibility to make their own decisions because ultimately they they should know best. If the, you have the right talent on board, if you have people that fully understand their job role and the um, the sort of the finished what what the finished product needs to be, generally speaking, you will sort of have. Um, people be a lot more open to taking on that responsibility. So the trouble with kind of assigning a manager or a leader is we can kind of, that person can sometimes put their ego into the project and it can start rather than being collaborative project, it can go back towards being a very hierarchical management of a smaller form. And that's what we don't want. So it's what it's always best to do is actually get people to self-submit themselves to the project because then they'll be a lot more invested rather than forcing people to sort of take on a particular project you kind of get an idea of exactly the people that want to be involved in the project so that they're far more passionate about it because passion always leads to better performance so it is ultimately about giving autonomy and making them realize that they're all accountable for the final decision. So they have to, as a team, be happy with the final decision and the progress that project makes. Um, You know, there's none of this um, like, oh, well, he said, she said kind of blame game. Um, What you have to do is is let them know that from the beginning, they will all be um, accountable for the results of the project. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree with that. and, and I actually did one uh, major cross-functional team project and uh, every single member of the, the, the team was accountable in um, his or her own um, goals and objectives, which affected her compensation uh, and also my compensation and that of my manager. Uh, and so we were all, all really on board on, on making sure the, the outcome of the team uh, project was successful. And... Um, yeah, every, everything you said, it makes complete sense. Oh, good. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely true because, you know, um, I mean, especially when it comes to uh, sort of, you know, integrated groups, it's really important to, to get that diversity. And it is, it is hard to nurture that sometimes because we are so used to 
um, such a hierarchical process. But actually, like you say, you know, when when people are accountable and they realize that they've got to put their all into it and they can't shift blame, um, people really step up to the plate because they realize there's no get out clause. There's there's no get out of jail free card. They, they have to commit as much as everybody else to the project yeah so there's no no saying oh that's not my fault that is uh, yeah. Joe's fault that uh, he was in charge of that yeah. part right yeah, yeah exactly there is none of that um and that is hard that is I think that's sometimes hard for even people to take on within the workplace because we are so used to um, being able to put blame on, on others we're able to um, wipe our hands of our decisions and our actions and actually if you if you want a more collaborative human workplace we will make failings and actually admitting that and learning from them is is a far better um business model than than constantly shifting blame really yeah yeah well i mean i i would say that as i've progressed in my career to different uh, levels of leadership that um i'm constantly getting um advice on what i should be doing and and the kind of different decisions you need to make in the workplace um, change. And so mm-hmm. I I recently read a book uh, called Principles by Ray Dalio, who's a U.S. fund manager. And in it, in one of his principles, uh, he, he recommends that if you're making a decision, the person affected by that decision should be the one making the decision, which means that you're not going to be exposed to different incentives to say, hey, it wasn't my yeah. fault. Um, it's somebody else <laughs> made the decision for me. And if you're yeah. affected, then you should be involved. And so by sharing the objectives among the different uh, team members, I think that's that's really one very, very effective way of getting everyone on the same page. Definitely. I mean, how have the organizations you've worked with um, you know, created more integrated groups. I mean, have, 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 I mean, I know you've mentioned about the university, how they created these sort of learning teams, but have any of the other organisations you've worked in sort of created any kind of collaborative processes for diversity? Yeah, um, so I can give you a few examples on, on this. The first one, I'll give you the multinational uh, company and, um, and then I'll give you a, a smaller sort of consulting uh, company. So... Um, and when I was working for a very large multinational, we had a, a new CEO come in and he changed the entire organizational structure from a hierarchical uh, uh, structure to uh, this kind of matrix organization, if you've heard of those. And it's that's where uh, instead of you reporting to uh, your manager, so for example, if you're in sales, you report to your sales director and the sales director might report to um, a general manager, general manager reports to CEO. Um, you would have a second uh, dotted line report. So if you are a um, sales manager, well, you also report maybe to a product manager who then reports to someone in R&D. And so you get these two reports, one which is a, a direct line report and one which is a dotted line. And um, that, uh, I, I, from what I've seen is obviously you create a little bit more reporting and a little bit of uh, vagueness around who's uh, really responsible for one thing or another. Uh, so mm. for for example, you might want to sell, um, I don't know, 100 widgets in the UK. And the product manager might say, well, he doesn't care about how many widgets you sell in the UK, but he wants to sell 500 widgets in Europe. Um, whereas your your sales director will say, well, I don't care how many widgets you sell in France. I want to make sure you hit 100 in the UK, right? Because you have slightly different yeah. um, incentives based on your, your objectives. And then obviously all of that affects your compensation. And so... 
um, by enabling this kind of uh, dotted line uh, product uh, kind of overlay on top of the direct porting line, we create a much more collaborative organization because all of a sudden now the sales rep in, um, I don't know, Gloucester is talking to the product manager based in uh, Boston in the US because he's in charge of the, the global uh, production line of widgets. And, and that person also reports to someone in R&D and then ultimately everyone reports to the CEO, but um, you have multiple touch points outside of your own direct team. The, yeah, so that some people hate that, by the way. I mean, it, uh, <laughs> it depends on depends. I, I found that to be very effective, and that's okay. really good as well for supply chain management. Where if you're, you know, you're, I, I had I was once dealing with a, a factory in Cardiff, uh, whilst I was based in in the U.S. in New Jersey, and we had to work out what kind of customer demand would get from uh, North America region. But then, because it was being built by the factory in Cardiff and we had a four-month delay, um, the, the forecasting had to be really accurate so we weren't sitting around with lots of inventory or have a stock out. And obviously, the guys in Cardiff, they don't care about what kind of demand is in North America. They just want to meet overall demand for their guys, um, which is mm -hmm. uh, the supply chain production. Whereas the salespeople in North America, well, they don't care about anything else apart from making their own numbers. <laughs> and so those, those kind of... Uh, uh, matrix organizations force the conversations to take place and, and really uh, affect information flow in a, in a big organization. The consulting firm example, which um, that's very different because you're, I, I, I was in a very, very small um, type of uh, strategy team but working for a global client, which meant that you always you want to deliver the best of your company to your client. And... Um, you know, an expert might be an expert on um, aerosolized antibiotics might be based in uh, Boston in the US. Your client might be based somewhere in Germany and your your project owner, the guy who actually sold the project and he's staffing the project might be based in um, London. Right. And so then that person wants to make sure he is able to get the best people um, to staff his project. And so that way, you would go through uh, the, the different uh, staffing people in different uh, cities. And then you'd say, oh, I'm, I'm looking for these skill set. And you do a, a, like a, a, a sweep throughout the entire firm. And then you contact the people. And then all of a sudden, you've got a team uh, with internationally diverse uh, with a really good set of skills and can tackle this problem with uh, the best knowledge and uh, the talent that the company has to offer. And typically, you get really, really good outcomes. And on top of that, because typically the culture in an organization isn't very different in uh, one city to another, um, you, you get people who can instantly start working with each other who hadn't known each other um, even a day ago, um, working as if they were best friends by the end of uh, the first day of the project. And I think the, the point I should make here is that even though I've worked in uh, five countries, I've lived in eight countries now, um, <laughs> when you go to the office in, for example, Paris, or you go to the office in New York, or you go to the office in London, the company culture is very recognizable. So yes, the people might be a little bit different, language uh, might be different, but the, the values, the way of working, the internal lingo, um, as mm -hmm. it were, is, is very similar. So you can just get there and get to work. 
Um, whereas if you go outside and you take a walk around the city, sure, that's that's very different, and that, that's a foreign aspect. Definitely, no, that's such a valid point, and I think that's an insight that people will really find interesting. Definitely. So, what would your advice be to those currently working in or managing a culturally diverse team? Have, have you got any tips or recommendations from your experience, Charles? Oh, that's a very good question. I'm still trying to work <laughs> that out myself. Um, in my in my current team, I have um, a, a Norwegian. Um, I have a a guy who's who's British. Um, he's half. Um, Ethiopian half English, uh, but brought up in Brunei. I've got um, a Ukrainian, and um, the most English of English um, kids are from uh, <laughs> uh, Oxted and Surrey. Fantastic. And the team is very diverse, but they all get along with, with each other very, very well. And so, um, what I've used is uh, I've used that team charter, which I learned from uh, business school, which is at the the beginning. You sit down, you go through. The goals and objectives. You talk through what each person wants to get out of uh, the next few months. Um, what learning development goals each person has, um, and you do that in front of everyone else. So everyone in the team knows what um, the objective of the other person is. Which means that yes, you know how to work. And then the the second thing that I've instituted is that um, the work style. So some people don't like to be interrupted every five minutes. Um, other people uh, prefer. Hey, don't 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 Google it. Just ask a question. It's fine. I, I don't I don't mind answering the question. And so knowing that about the other person that you're working with is pretty important to not um, upsetting or annoying the person. Definitely. And um, and so getting those things out right at the beginning, I found to be very very useful. And it's it's probably the, one of the most important um, learnings I've taken from from my MBA. Um, many of which I've forgotten, but but one of them <laughs> was um, and still is, is is very valid in my daily life. Fantastic! I think that's an amazing tip, and I think that's definitely a a good model to to start with when when you know building a diverse team, like you say, especially when you're we've got lots of people who who like to work a certain way, and you you don't ever want to upset the apple cart. So that's some really good tips, Charles. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I think it's been such an interesting conversation because I think we can all learn something from each other in the workplace, no matter what background or what culture we come from. So I really believe that a lot of people will take some some valid points from today's conversation. So thank you for being so open with me today, Charles. Um, Lizzie, thank you for having me on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure and thank you for allowing me to share some of the a few tidbits from my own experience <laughs> uh, thank you Charles bye Bye-bye. you've been listening to make it thrive the company culture podcast with me your host Lizzie Benton if you've enjoyed listening and want to keep up with all things culture don't forget to subscribe thank you so much for listening and I look forward to welcoming you back next week